Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. You know, the narrative of, of, you know, big tech companies getting bigger, having all the advantages during the pandemic, using data to strengthen their hold on the economy. That's the story that I tell in this book. And it's the story of the last couple of years. And it's not it's not changing. There's there are still opportunities for innovation and entrepreneurship. But, the, you know, I don't see any signs that the Amazon boulder rolling downhill is slowing down. If anything, it feels like it's gathering speed. This week, we're very excited to be joined by author Brad Stone. He's the senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg. But for our purposes, he is the author of Amazon Unbound, The Upstarts, which is about Airbnb and Uber, and The Everything Store, 2013 book, the seminal tale of the rise of the amazing Everything Store that Jeff Bezos created, and really a biography of the man, the company he built, and how he changed America. For our purposes, that's exactly what we want to talk about today, which is what does this company do? Everybody knows about Amazon.com, but that's not the entire story and hasn't been for a while. AWS, their largest server company, now they're in Prime Video, now Bezos has bought the Washington Post, the little tentacles through which this company has through all, all of American business and more has changed a lot over the years. And that's what this book is about. Yeah. And We're doing a lot of work to think about why is it useful for us to elevate a topic or an author, just any focus area? How is that of relevance to the realignment thesis idea? And it's in the title, Amazon Unbound. The point of this book is that in the years since Brad Stone published The Everything Store, Amazon has just expanded everything it covers far beyond just traditional retail. So that's, as Sagar pointed out, AWS. That's Amazon Prime. That's everything with the Washington Post, the acquisition of Whole Foods. If you as a listener are going to think about the realignment framework, it's incredibly important that you understand who the players are within Realignment America and how they are actually interacting and how they actually work like. There are so many instances over the past few months, especially given the politics, where you've seen people have a lot of hot takes about Amazon. And Brad is a useful corrective coming from either direction. We and Brad are not trying to tell you how to feel about Amazon, but it's really important you understand how it works. It's really important that you understand that if you're concerned about antitrust, if you think Amazon is too big, you should understand that spinning off AWS wouldn't actually change the decision to host Parler or not. And that's the type of stuff we get into during this episode. Yeah, I really love talking with Brad. He's such a smart guy. Okay, you guys know the deal. Make sure you go ahead and subscribe to therealignment.substack.com, which hits your inbox every Thursday. It's an excellent way for you to keep up with us. It's where you can access our bookshop, where you can go and buy Brad's book if you don't want to benefit and give your cut to Jeff Bezos. Brad's books, this is the key thing. If you're thinking why this one matters, you should read The Everything Store, The Upstarts, and Amazon Unbound. Sagar and I had this reaction to it. If you you read these three books, you're just going to have a excellent grasp of everything in Silicon Valley. Brad is so good at just giving a strong mm-hmm. framework for thinking about all this stuff. He's an excellent author. And I really mean, you know, the best ones are the ones who can take highly complicated concepts, lots of original reporting, lots of research, pack it into something that I can actually understand as somebody who's never even set foot in Seattle and it make it something that I can take away and then bring to all of you. So I truly loved these books. Uh, I recommend that you all buy them, hopefully from our bookshop, which helps an independent bookstore during COVID-19. And it helps our work here at The Realignment. So with that, 
Let's get to the question and answer period. Just a reminder, you can ask a question by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with the question they're in, or you can send a screenshot of your five-star review to realignmentpod at gmo.com. Today's is nice. It's simple. Um, we appreciate the really super long ones, but it is good to get straightforward ones every once in a while. So thank you for this. So today's question is from Anthony123. Hey guys, my name is Anthony Duprow. Wow, Anthony really wanted us to... Shout out to Anthony, Shout out your to full Anthony. name. All right. Yeah. You know how this is the internet, yeah. so uh, good luck with that. Um, and I'm a huge fan of your show and a riser. My question is, if you could pick one president, either dead or alive, you could bring on your podcast, who would it be? Oh, that's easy. Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, you know, in terms of the amount of range, both U.S. history, his ability to recite German poetry in the language on command, his voracious reading habit. I like many presidents, maybe more than Teddy Roosevelt in terms of what they did. But for a podcast guest, no question. You could go 25 hours with a man. I could do three hours with Teddy Roosevelt just on the River of Doubt Amazon expedition alone. I burst out laughing when Sagar made reference to the German poetry because neither of us are into poetry or literature. So he would just do it and we'd just be like, yeah. wow, that's cool, I'd Mr. Like, President. Whoa. And we'd just move on yeah, because but we would have absolutely, I know that's what I'm just, it's That's funny, the thing right? about like, it, right? I don't give a shit about poetry and everybody knows it. Um, who knows me? But he would explain why this particular poetry was important. And I think that would be interesting. Yeah, so I was going to say, Teddy Roosevelt, but let's just level up on this to make it a little diverse. I would bring on Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah. Just because, be especially after his political ambitions were just exhausted, he had a lot of thoughts. My favorite story, um, a lot of us know that Sagar and I love the Robert Carroll Lyndon Johnson series. And after the book came out, there's this quote of, Lund of Nixon saying, he was, he was an animal. Uh, just the way he talked was so visceral. He would also make an excellent podcast guest. So that's what you're really looking to do. If you're looking for two, three hour stem winders, it would definitely be with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Richard Nixon. Yeah, Marshall, I just looked it up. So here's what he said. He goes, God, it makes him look like a goddamn animal. And then he pauses and he goes, of course it was. Amazing man. It's just, <laughs> he, Nixon, I mean, Nixon was there for a lot. Met Khrushchev in the 1950s, VP for Eisenhower. He was always lying and obfuscating, so we would have had to have interviewed him at the very end of his life. Like, I imagine us going to Rancha Mesa or whatever his, like, palatial California estate was, like, two or three years before his death, and we would have just gotten all of it, and it really would have been good. No idea how we're going to follow up on that, so we're just going to roll into it. Of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Let's dive into the episode. Brad Stone, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's good to see you, Brad. So, Brad, here's where I want to start. You've written the two defining books on Amazon. I guess this has come out very recently, so we can't quite call this one defining, but at least there's a narrative arc we could play with here. 
in the first book, you're obviously covering the company's origin story up until the 2010s. And this book is really the period ever since then. You know, there's a funny appearance on a podcast where you've made a reference to talking about, about Amazon for four years and eventually realizing that you no longer knew exactly what you were talking about because everything had changed so much. So I think that's a good way of framing this. So to start off, you're a reporter, so I'm not expecting you to give an exact answer to this. But how would someone go about determining whether Amazon is a net positive or a net negative for the country? Because in so many of the books, the podcast, we had Alec McGillis on a few months back, there's this very clear implication that Amazon is either really bad or it's really good or it's meh. How should we think about the question itself? It's one of the, I think, defining questions in, in the book and one perhaps in the end that I kind of don't answer right? Because I feel like it's sort of unknowable. I think that what we need to do is understand the story, understand the impact, the, um, you know, the, the, the clear, you know, impact that it has on the labor market and on local commerce and on competition globally. But, you know, personally, I don't come at it as a critic and I want to be really clear eyed about the, the benefits, right? I'm a, I'm a prime member and an echo owner and watch the TV shows and movies and order the groceries. And it was a lifeline during the pandemic. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is kind of tell the story, get people to understand both sides of the ledger, and then maybe make their own decision. I, I also think that ultimately, you know, Amazon, like our kind of technological revolution over the span of my lifetime is, you know, an aspect of public life and it's not going away. So in some ways, it, it's sort of a meaningless question to ask, right? We can address the negatives in Amazon's conduct and force it through activism or employee voices or through antitrust regulation to do better. But it's not like we're going to wipe it out and move to a hypothetical alternate universe where it doesn't exist. We can't go back to the days before e-commerce and Alexa and e-books uh, and, and cloud computing. And so in some ways, you know, it's really just our responsibility to understand it and make better decisions and how we, you know, kind of force it to change. Probably the thing that frustrates me the most here in DC is looping things in and just not really know what you're talking about. So people will be like, big tech is out of control. And so I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. I'm so like, so you just named a retail company, a hardware company, a search engine, and a social network. I agree, all four are out of control in their own ways. That being said, you should probably know what you're talking about whenever you're gonna level an accusation. So let's start with the critics of Amazon. What do they get right? And then what do they get wrong? Let's start with right. Right. Well, it's interesting because I think I, I actually, you're, you're raising an issue where I, I sort of feel passionate about, like there's, there's so much, um, yeah, clueless commentary from folks who were talking about Walmart for 10 years and Walmart is not even part of their vocabulary anymore. And Amazon's the big bag boogeyman. And there's not a great understanding of how the internet works and how much, how many alternatives there are. You know, they talk about Amazon's, um, you know, reach and the number of people who start their product searches on Amazon as being some sort of captive audience, when really an alternative is a, you know, a browser tab away, you know, the most minimum of effort to go compare a price or to, you know, to look at Walmart or search on Google. And, you know, and, and then, you know, the fact is that like all those companies you listed are competing with each other, right, on the margins, right? Amazon's greatest competition in cloud computing is Microsoft, a bigger company by market cap. And its biggest competitor 
in pure retail in in the West is Walmart, a bigger company by sales. And, you know, and it's it's diffuse focus on so many things has opened up pockets of real opportunity for competitors like um, Shopify. And so, yeah, what 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 gets me a little bit is maybe the 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 um, the weak understanding by some of the more prominent critics of how complex these issues are. And then when you get to the regulatory proceedings in Washington, at least, the whole thing is cast, you know, in further confusion by not to get too political here, but the Republican Party, you know, turning these events into a circus by seizing upon the regulation or discrimination against conservative voices, which, you know, when Jeff Bezos is sitting in the room next to Zuckerberg and and Sundar Pichai has nothing to do, yeah. you know, He'll not take that really deal all day long. You yeah, know, it's like, just yeah, a, I'll just sit here. It's all good. <laughs> it's a distraction. And so, you know, what they get right is I think there's a really productive focus on Amazon's use of data and its marketplace and with its private label products and maybe the very opaque ties between AWS and Amazon retail and Amazon devices. Those are things like as a journalist, I want to understand better. And then Amazon goes to great lengths to obscure. And so the more the better understanding we can get of this company and how it advantages itself in even small ways, I think is a really, would be a really good outcome for, for the current uh, uh, regulatory processes mm-hmm. that are underway. Yeah. I, I've heard you say the critics often don't understand how the internet works point enough. Could you just delve into that a bit and explain what you are really getting at, especially right. as relates to the questions of monopoly in that part. Yeah, what does lock-in mean? What does it mean that Amazon controls a customer or, or controls a seller? Because we do have a lot of choices, right? And Amazon is operating in, in market categories where you know, they're, they don't really even have a majority of the market share. Um, you know, in retail, in e-commerce itself, we've you know you've seen uh, from various data sources that it's a forty to fifty percent player in in North America, its strongest market. Um, you know, you go back to Microsoft in the '90s when it had a ninety-five percent command of of Windows of operating system market share. So its market power is you know less, I think, less significant. I mean, surely we can identify areas like books and eBooks where the control, they, they have a larger stake um, and where, you know, their, their conduct might deserve a little bit more scrutiny. And then, you know, when you get even to marketplace sellers um, you know, there, there are choices now, you know, Amazon obviously has, has become the biggest star in the, in the sky, but you know, there, there are other marketplaces in, in other countries and even in, in, in the U S. So, you know, I just think it's like understanding the competitive dynamics the ease, the ease with which um, you know you can find alternatives, even if you're a seller, um, and that you know the the anti-competitive conduct is there, but it's it's a lot more subtle, and Amazon goes to great lengths to disguise it, and you know, and 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 we have to think really hard when we design conduct remedies to make sure you know we're not just singling Amazon out for behavior that is common in in the retail business. You know, that is a tried and true practice of retail for for decades, like private label products. Um, And that whatever we do, we don't make Amazon stronger because that is a possibility, Mm -hmm. you know, that you pass regulation and it it, in some ways emboldens the company because it restricts a practice that is is industry wide. So 
I want to pick up on something you said a little earlier when you described Amazon as just being a facet of the society we live in. And, you know, the first book was obviously titled The Everything Store. So relating to your point about the internet, is an everything store, quote unquote, basically inevitable then? Because that seems to be what you're suggesting there. I mean, the, the internet is itself an everything store, right? Even the things that Amazon doesn't sell, you know, automobiles or life insurance, you know, we can go find on the internet. And Bezos had that vision early on that even if you didn't have it in your warehouse downstairs in the basement, you know, you could eventually go find it. And so the internet made uh, made real the idea of a, of a store with infinite shelves, Um but yeah, there, there are competitive dynamics of the internet now that allow for, you know, endless competition and, you know, what, you know, what the competitive dynamic in, in one country um, being different than, you know, next door. And even in countries that Amazon doesn't operate, you know, its site is accessible and then vice versa for Alibaba and other competitors. So yeah, I mean, the internet really upends, I think, a lot of our notions. And look, I mean, a lot of very smart people get this. I mean, the 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 thinkers that the Biden administration has brought in, like Lena Khan, whose who's appointment is currently uh, under review for the FTC, and Tim Wu, who's joining the, the White House, like, they have written books and esteemed law papers about this dynamic and urged really a rethinking of antitrust law to, you know, to you know, address some of these competitive dynamics that are unique to yeah. our, our internet age. Let's get into that, though. I'm not sure if they do understand it. And because I'm somebody who was uh, definitely much more of the Tim Wu, uh, Matt Lena Khan mindset probably like two years ago, I had read a very impactful essay by Ben Thompson, and actually it was underscored to me by Andrew Yang, which is that the internet naturally selects for monopolies. And in a zero marginal cost business, there really should be one everything store. As in, and I was talking about this with Marshall earlier about the Walmart discourse. It makes a lot more sense to break up Walmart. Walmart has a geographical footprint, has the empirical marginal cost of having to open stores all across the country. If you broke up Walmart, the consumer in California is not going to be hurt because they're just going to go whatever their baby Walmart is. Whereas if you broke up Amazon, it impacts every consumer in the country by having to go to like nine different websites to buy diapers or to buy like a coffee mug or to buy like a notebook. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. From a, And this isn't even just using the consumer welfare, welfare standard. This even comes down to, you know, price, bargaining and more. It just doesn't seem to make sense on any front whenever we try to assess it through antitrust. So I'm curious from your perspective, I've been writing about the internet for a long time, which is that if we start to accept that the internet is just so physiologically different than the geographical footprint, does antitrust even make sense? Or does it really mean that we have to discuss everything in terms of regulation? So like you were saying, and like you write in your book, we're talking about private labels. Okay, yeah, but you know, Walmart just simply doesn't have the same level to track its customers the way that Amazon does. Amazon actually does have a very unique advantage in the private label business. Same thing in terms of the regulation on their own platform of counterfeits being unfair about accessibility of the Chinese market. These are all like discrete policy problems that I'm like, oh, I could see a government agency wanting to fix that. But I don't see why antitrust is going right. to solve a lot of these problems. Well, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I do think we need to be careful that we're not allowing these companies. I mean, they have so many advantages, you know, access to capital. Um, access to the most talented engineers, um, you know, these these self-perpetuating systems that get larger and larger. 
And we have to be careful that they're not leveraging their advantages into adjacent markets. And that is really the issue with the private label business, which I think is so easily understandable to most people. Like Amazon has a vast data set yeah. of third-party sales and they can figure out that, okay, this laptop stand is, is selling well. And suddenly they've gone to the same factory as the seller and are selling it under an Amazon basics label uh, for, for, le- for cheaper. And by the way, Amazon's placing it ahead of the third-party seller in search results. That feels funny. It smells wrong. Um, and it's this. It goes back to window Microsoft trying to muscle uh, into the operating system market in the in the, sorry into the browser market in the 90s, and, and and so that kind of leverage we see it across the board. You know, Google into you know streaming video and 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 other other kind of search result categories. Amazon into you know healthcare. Right? Can they can they use the the staging ground of cloud services and retail? You know, in you know, in fair ways, but perhaps in unfair ways to go and and dominate a whole new product category. And that's where I feel like that maybe the the government, government various governments have a role to play in being kind of the the cops to ensure good behavior in the marketplace. Yeah. So so something that is just interesting is you had a good statement where you made the point that disruption in these industries is always around the corner. And I think if we were having this conversation in 2015, 2016, 2017, there'd be a lot more skepticism for me around that point. Um, You'd be seeing, well, Facebook just beat Snapchat and they beat Instagram and Google's in a great place, so on and so on and so on. Um, But now in the year since then, Snap has recovered. Uh, TikTok, despite we're totally putting the national security arguments to the side here. TikTok completely has challenged Facebook's dominance. And, you know, there's the joke about young people not using Facebook. So I think it is actually pretty clear in the year 2021 that the disruption argument is a lot different than it used to look. How should we think of a company like Amazon getting disrupted? And is this something that Bezos and Amazon leadership are actively concerned about, which I'm guessing they are? Yeah, they and they always talk about it. Um, I, I mentioned the example of of, Shop, of Shopify before, but I think it's sort of interesting to look at it a little bit further. So Amazon's trying to be everywhere. It's the everything store. It wants to be everything to everyone, and so it's got a marketplace side where it's allowing you know third party sellers, you know, often overseas, sometimes from China, to sell globally, in addition to a curated kind of brand centric retail component. And the, and the two are at war. And I tell the story over and over in the book because, you know, a, a, a Nike is never going to feel comfortable where when you have a, a whole site full of sneakers with brand insignias that aren't swooshes, but they look somewhat like it. And uh, and they've got crazy names. And, and by the way, they're much cheaper. And so, you know, Amazon tries to cater to everyone, but clearly they've made a bet that the uninhibited selection of marketplace is something that customers want. Nike has left Amazon and a Shopify comes around and with laser eyed focus on just the brand and the curated store opportunity, it has built, and I don't have the number at my fingers, but a multi-billion dollar business and, and, and cleaved off a part of Amazon's opportunity. So I think, I think it's what you're saying, Marshall. It's like in this day and age, every company's uh, hegemony is only as secure as somebody having a great idea in a garage and pursuing it with focus. And yeah, one yeah. one quick thing on this, actually, um, and this is a more meta question for you as a editor, author, etc. I'm not trying to do the dunk on DC show, but I think the part that's interesting to me is that 
narratives tend to exist go go on a little past where they can perpetuate so in the sense that i don't think at least in the public policy discourse the idea that you can't i don't think it's possible to let me put it a better way the idea that there is no way to disrupt the big four big five text giants just doesn't seem to be in the moment accurate right now and we're still operating off of a two-year behind narrative how do you think of narratives quote unquote right um in the tech industry well i mean i i i do feel like despite everything i said i'll now make the contradicting statement that while there are pockets of opportunity it's really hard to imagine anyone challenging or even slowing down amazon as a whole and and then you look at google and the self-perpetuating advantages of you know, collecting the data to constantly improve search. And yes, there are little rivals like DuckDuckGo that, you know, are, you know, affectionately regarded, but no one's, you know, I mean, Facebook is the one where you mentioned TikTok and like my household is a TikTok household and Facebook never comes into it. And I do think they're maybe a little bit more vulnerable and that the antitrust argument against Facebook is a little flimsier. But, you know, the narrative of, uh, you know, big tech companies getting bigger, having all the advantages during the pandemic, using data to strengthen their hold on the economy, that's the story that I tell in this book. And it's the story of the last couple of years. And it's not, it's not changing. There's, there are still opportunities for innovation and entrepreneurship. But, the, you know, I don't see any signs that the Amazon boulder rolling downhill is slowing down. If anything, it feels like it's gathering speed. Yeah, I think that's important. And I'm realizing, you know, Jay Carney, if he's listening to this, he's like, yes, they're using my talking points. You know, disruption's right around the corner. He's like, what does he breaking us up even mean? That's terrible complicit. for the consumer. <laughs> yeah, like, I understand. And 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 I mean, I'm somebody very skeptical of Amazon. I, I'm somebody who really does understand, and this is an Alec McGillis point, which is that the existence of it is actually changing America. But I also understand that that's also somewhat intrinsic to American free market capitalism that's changed like three or four different times. But when you do look at the power and you look at the pandemic, I mean, becoming the second largest employer in the United States, having that much leverage and power over the labor market, these are fundamental questions. We have been resolving this for the last 150 years. The tension between labor and capital will always remain. So from that perspective, just talk about what Amazon means to America as like part of our social fabric. Because I do think, this is a Scott Galloway point he makes all the time, which is that like Amazon has more of a relationship with American households than people who put up Christmas trees. Amazon is more American than apple pie. And I think that that is just something that I've tried to repeat here because I don't think people understand how in the zeitgeist of all of our households that this company is. And that is a tremendous amount of power that we should be skeptical of, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I've been at a restaurant or at a cafe um, and, and overheard the table next door, some discussion of Amazon and Mm -hmm. or Alexa or, you know, their orders or here in Silicon Valley, a business discussion about AWS. It does feel like it's in the, and of course, as, as the, as an Amazon journalist, I'm, I'm sort of eavesdropping on everyone, but it's not a rare occurrence. And yeah, the, the idea of how integrated this company is into our lives, um, into our communities, um, yeah, it's remarkable. This, you, there's no Super Bowl anymore without an Amazon ad. You know, the ads are everywhere. And this was a company and a CEO who was skeptical about advertising just 10 years ago and felt like it was wasted money. Um, yeah, and and obviously, and this is, you know, this is 
well drawn in Alex's book is, uh, you know, how impactful it has been in smaller communities where, you know, economic opportunity was wiped out, you know, not by Amazon, but by successive decades of churn and change in the American economy and the globalization of manufacturing and um, the battle between unions, unions and labor organizers. And, you know, in some ways, Amazon offers opportunity in places where there hasn't been enough of it. And the company is receptive to the criticism. And it's why they've tried to get, you know, lead with their chin and get out in front on like a high wage. But, you know, and I hope this really comes through in my book. They are at heart really anti-union. And, and you know, oh, and Jay, yeah. right. to your point of his listening, will maybe argue that point. But you know, that Bezos said to his colleagues early on that the biggest risk to the company was an entrenched and activist workforce of the kind that he believed had hobbled the U.S. automakers, uh, you know, generations before. And we see it in Bessemer, Alabama and everywhere, how they fight tooth and nail to prevent these organizing activities in their in their uh, facilities. Yeah, this is something I, I also wanted to pick up on, which is that I found that entire episode fascinating because I read your first book, The Everything Store. And Bezos is this just impeccable communicator. You genuinely almost respect it. You're like, this guy, laser focus on the mission, never drifts away. Then I realized, I started reading your book, what happened around the Bessemer situation started to make more sense, which is he wanted to clap back at Trump for some reason in 2015. And his whole staff was like, dude, this is a terrible idea. You're just going to feed the beast. You're going to become part of the discourse. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it. And he did. And it turned out exactly that way. I saw this. I was shocked whenever I saw the Amazon account tweeting back at Representative Mark Pocan. But like, you don't really believe the uh, story about, you know, Amazon workers peeing in bottles. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? Everybody knows that's true. And then he, everybody has, then they have to come out and be like, we're sorry. It turns the, out it's true. The walk back. <laughs> and it turns out that this is ordered from Bezos himself. And I remember just being like, what the hell happened to Jeff Bezos? Cause I had just read your book because in a way the story of Amazon is the story of this one man. This is part of the problem with imbuing so much power and wealth in a single individual. How do you explain that change within Jeff Bezos, the man himself from going to a point where, I mean, you probably agree with this 2005 Bezos would never do that. Never. And yet now he's like, you know what? Screw you. You're not going to talk shit about my company. I'm coming right after you. And it doesn't matter how impetuous I look in this situation. Right. I mean, a couple of things have happened. One, back then, they were content to, as they said, be misunderstood. They put up the walls, they hid in Seattle, and they didn't care what people said about them. It didn't seem to matter. Their goal at the time was get the latest Harry Potter book to customers on the day right. of publication, and the rest would take care of itself. And then, and this is, I think, the story I tell in this book, they become you know, a bigger company tightly integrated with their community and other communities, you know, a subject of national discourse. They kind of dislodge Walmart as like the big boogeyman of retail and the public imagination. It's no longer enough to be misunderstood. They got to get out there and battle. And that's the kind of punchiness we see in their public uh, pronouncements. But at the same time, what happens is Bezos, his feet leave the this earth, right? He is the wealthiest guy in the world. He's enjoying hobnobbing with the elites in, in Hollywood and in D.C. He's eating iguana and sampling single cow burger and building a yacht. And he he's a little out of touch, I think, with, well, certainly the, the driver uh, that's making an Amazon delivery, uh, and also probably regular, you know, mortal tastes. And so they, it can feel a little tone deaf. 
in just the way you'd expect from like a billionaire micromanaging media strategy when he really doesn't know what is happening on the ground. Do you guys remember during the pandemic where he he had an Instagram video of him touring a fulfillment center outside yeah. of Dallas? It was like the first time in years, right? <laughs> it just felt so weird, right? Like yeah. he had he really been in one of these things in, in a decade? I right. I felt like he was sort of seeing it for the first time in a, in a long while. So yeah, I, I feel like he's maybe lost a little bit of touch. And when you've had, you know, a team of people catering to your every need and moving in rarefied society, that is not surprising. Yeah. You know, I, uh, this actually came up when I was reading the book, but also when you just made the point about control over the workforce, because looking at the tech industry as a whole, this seems like a very white collar, blue collar phenomenon. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on AGM at Apple, but on a broader level, there is this very clear phenomenon where white white collar professionals in the tech industry, you see this with Project Maven, you see this with um, basically um, the US, uh, working with the US government with ICE, working with the US military, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are gaining more and more control relative to what you would think they would have in the past. Uh, I don't see a world where 2005 Amazon is having um, employee conflicts over working with the US military, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So can you just comment on the increasing vocalness of white collar professionals in the industry, really in contrast, and I guess Amazon is probably the only one of these companies that has a significant blue collar workforce. I'd just love to hear how you think this dynamic is playing out. You know, it's interesting because this has been one of the defining stories of Silicon Valley over the past few years. And the employee protests, I think, have gathered into a full-fledged kind of conflagration at Google and, and really given the company a black eye and, and, and changed its policy. You know, you, you mentioned a few instances, but, you know, Google pulled out of the Jedi contract bidding, maybe because it knew it would lose, but in part because employees were objecting to it. And then, but at Amazon, I see it more as little brush fires. And they have, you know, moved swiftly and ruthlessly to stamp them out. And so there were climate protests inside Amazon and Amazon fired the leaders. It was, there's no way to really justify it. And Amazon tries with, by saying that they violated some policy or another, but really they, they, are, they are basically punishing the squeaky wheels. And then obviously, you know, in the fulfillment centers, you had the employees in Staten Island and elsewhere that were protesting safety conditions in the spring of 2020 and Amazon fired them. And it's, you know, it, it's as if they are unwilling to accept any internal dissent. And they don't want the kind of out of control, you know, conflagration that they see at Google and other companies. And it's probably the culture that Bezos has set up and they know they're going to take a black eye in the short term, but they're avoiding this kind of internal activist dissent in the long term. They're making a, a, a really hardcore decision. And, you know, I think they've lost some executives because of it. People look back and think this is something that is really unexcusable and maybe a little rotten in the, the corporate culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to take a total pivot to another topic because there was another quick reference you made in the book, which I, I don't know how deeply you follow debates on the American right in DC, but it was a really revelatory line you were referencing during the HQ2 saga. So when Amazon is making decisions around where they are going to place the second headquarters, which eventually ended up with the combination um, Hudson, you know, the Hudson Yards expansion uh, DC, um, but 
Atlanta, which was a final near near the final uh, spot, didn't end up getting it because Amazon noted that the Georgia state legislature had effectively removed tax, not effectively, literally removed tax breaks on uh, an airline over its decision to not support work with, et cetera, the NRA. And that was just interesting to me because a lot of the time, a lot of our listeners would think about these debates of, well, there's this issue of woke capital and you see corporations getting more and more active with their politics. And if you're someone who doesn't agree with those decisions, what can you do to affect that behavior? And an argument you see from folks is, well, the reason why companies whether it's, you know, the NCAA isn't quite technically a company, but the reason why the NCAA will make certain decisions, or the reason why Pepsi makes certain decisions is because they do not believe they will suffer political consequences. But in that anecdote, Amazon's like, okay, yeah, we're probably going to make decisions that are political. We probably can't go to certain states. So can you just comment on, I don't know if it, you probably didn't mean anything by including that line, but that for me, it really just opened up a, wait a second, this has basically already been tested. So can you just comment on this phenomenon? Because it's just right. fascinating from a political perspective. Yeah, I mean, Amazon initiates the HQ2 process in 2017 because they feel like their their politics and their MO were on trial in Seattle, right? And and that they had, you know, were viewed as sort of a, an enemy in a community that they felt they had built up, but were being sort of tried and convicted for things like gentrification, rising home prices, and homelessness. And so they initiate this process. And they're they're so they're running away from a political storm, and so in the site selection process, and I have all all the memos and all the decision making in this chapter in the book. You know, I, I look at their their thinking in cities like Atlanta and Raleigh, and and L.A. And what pops up in the in Atlanta, as you mentioned, but also in the others, is you know, are we are we running from one storm into another? Where are are you know the political leanings of the company, um, you know, is are, are going to be on trial? And they didn't want that, you know, and, and Atlanta around around Delta, but in Raleigh, it was on the, the bathroom bill in North Carolina. You know, are they are they going to be, you know, are they going to be um, wading into to turbulent political waters or being seen as validating, you know, in the case of the bathroom bill, um, you know, a very controversial, you know, political stance that the state was making. So the, the great irony is they tried to avoid all that and ran headlong into just another storm in Queens. Probably the worst um, storm. Like, out of, yeah, if, out of all of those three storm. outcomes, the one which definitely was the most aggressive. Right. And maybe they couldn't see the election of AOC or, um, you know, there was the, the, the fact that de Blasio was so hated or Cuomo had no control over the local city council. But it goes back to what we were saying about Jeff Bezos and his feet on the ground, right? They just didn't, they made a, a very far off decision from Seattle, not understanding the dynamics on the ground, the political dynamics in New York City. And, you know, they ran headlong into a disaster. Yeah. And yet they did read one city well. And I do think that is Washington, which is Bezos is here all the time. He's got the biggest house in the entire uh, in the entire city. He's, you know, Alpha Alpha Club, Gridiron Club. Funnily enough, um, I actually worked out at the gym across from him. And I was like, is that fuck? I was like, is that Jim no. Bezos? When was this? Or- uh, right after the Lauren Sanchez thing. And I was like, you ever heard a signal, dude? You know, like he's like working out. And then they, if there's like, ever a moment gym. not to walk up to yeah. Jeff Bezos yeah. in a public oh setting, it was and right there. I will attest to this. The guy is jacked. He goes yes. extraordinarily hard. Um, and I was, I was very impressed. Um, by it. And I, I just couldn't believe that the richest man in the world was working out at a public gym, but that's amazing. And 
one of the things that I'm getting to is that Amazon has seemed to understand politics in a very astute way, which actually kind of brings us to AWS, which is something I really want to discuss with you. I don't think most people in Washington really understood what AWS even was. Um, it has about 45% or something, whatever, right, of the cloud market, huge servicer, essentially is the platform on which many Silicon Valley companies are able to launch off of because they can, at a very low cost, rent server space, something they used to have to take out millions of dollars in funding in order to get. However, a lot of people found out during the parlor thing that AWS can actually just decide in order to essentially deplatform an entire website. And it led to a larger discussion of like AWS needs to be pulled from Amazon. It became part of the antitrust decision, which is AWS makes billions of dollars for Amazon, one of the most profitable parts of the business. It's subsidizing, you know, the rest of their retail, etc. Can you just explain and maybe disentangle some of the arguments both around Parler, but also the intrinsic nature of AWS to Amazon as a company? A famous Gallowayism is that he just thinks that Bezos is, or Jassy or whomever is just going to spin off AWS right. just so they don't even have to deal with the antitrust concern in the future. I do love Scott Galloway, but yeah. he is, uh, he, he does just sort of generously, you know, right. is generously He's got to take wrong. for everything. He's no, he's got to take for everything. Yeah. And he, he, you know, and he, he knows that often half the time he'll be, he'll be really visibly wrong and he doesn't care. Um, and I told him, I think I actually told him, I thought he was wrong about AWS. And he was wrong about this idea that AWS is the secret funding source for retail. And that is not how Bezos runs the business. AWS is extremely profitable and it goes to build more AWS. It is building more data centers, expanding into more countries and developing more services because it is in a foot race with Google and Microsoft and IBM and Oracle. If there is a service that is the secret kind of gold mine for Amazon, it's advertising, a mm -hmm. super high margin business. And, and that money is going into Prime Video and probably new products and Alexa expansion. But, you know, so, so spinning off AWS is, you know, first of all, you'd have instead of one big Amazon, you'd have two little, you know, let's call them baby Bezoses running around dominating in just the same way. So it wouldn't change anything. Right. And it would be, it might be sort of easy to split them apart because as I say, they're run somewhat independently. Um, they do, I think, nourish each other in some small ways. Alexa is a consumer-facing application of AWS. The retail business is AWS's biggest partner and beta tester. You know, retail gets wholesale rates from AWS, most like most likely. But um you know, I don't. I don't think it really slows down any of the of the components, and probably unlocks a lot of value. The last point is, they're just never going to do it voluntarily, at least in the near future, because they don't. They don't seem to really even entertain that kind of financial engineering, right? The, for the same reason, they don't give a dividend or buy back stock. It's you know, they Bezos is empire building, and you know, all this stuff is is under one roof, and there are connections. The the little advantages that he that he ties between all the properties and and uh and that's been very successful so unless that is you know forced upon them one day seems unlikely in the near term or unless in some distant future bezos has receded from view and investors clamor upon an amazon whose stock price hasn't grown in a long time again a hypothetical you know you could kind of see it and 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 then you question what what real difference would it make
Yeah. I want to talk about the advertising real quick because I had a really visceral reaction to the part of the book where they were debating whether or not to preference uh, advertising um, brands that advertised in the search because I'm I just moved I'm buying furniture and it's actually a disaster because there's all this I won't say it's junk but I just can't really trust the Amazon search function because so much of what at the top of it is sponsored posts so can you just like talk about the decision making around that space because that 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 relates back to the start of our conversation around like what happens when this isn't what happens when there's another tab away? Because I actually went to different tabs because it was difficult to search for generic consumer items given that step, given that uh, decision they made. And let me say that the furniture that's behind you right now looks fantastic. So uh, clearly, <laughs> you found some some good stuff. Um, <laughs> but you know, let me. I feel like if there's a turning point in the book, you've put your finger on it because this was a company that for so long, you know chanted the, the 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 cause the cry of the customers totally customer focused and yet they're they're experimenting and they're growing their ad business and nothing's really working and around 2005 bezos you know agrees that they could try sponsored ads at the top of search results like like google has and amazon pays google billions of dollars a year and it works and it makes a lot of money, but they see that there's a drop-off, a fall-off in, in customer satisfaction. And they kind of don't know over the long term how big that will be. But Bezos agrees, you know, he'll he'll accept the decrease in, in customer satisfaction and finding what customers are looking for, for the money that will go and invest in his dreams of Hollywood and the future of entertainment and inventive new devices and, you know, owning owning the network home and who knows what else. And that has been a tremendous business. I, I think it's was like five billion dollars in that other category in the last quarter, and it's funding all sorts of stuff. Amazon might might buy MGM, uh, you know, this week or next, in part because they can. You know, they're building an ad business across video, um, you know, which which is a lot of promise. Um, and and yet, you know, to your point, Marshall, it's like you have to you search for something on Amazon. You have to wonder what happened to my neatly organized, you know, taxonomy of useful products. It's a mess right now. And so they've compromised. They've, it, which I think was, you know, remarkable for Amazon and speaks to maybe Bez, some of Bezos's personal ambitions of empire building and becoming a force in Hollywood. Yeah, I always bring it back. You know, to it's like a shift in Bezos changed the shift in the company and really changed a lot. And that's something that brings us to the Washington Post, um, our hometown newspaper here in D.C., where Bezos buying it in 2013 was kind of one of those wow moments. I don't think people understood the significance of the time. And one thing that comes across in your book is that he didn't really understand what the hell he was getting into in terms of, oh, now all of a sudden you're a political society player here in Washington. Now, whenever your company, your paper is going to report on the president of the United States, they can take it out on you in terms of your company. You have a great line there where like the likely cost of the Washington Post was not 250 million, it was 10 billion dollars on the Jedi contract, which I absolutely do think is true even if Microsoft was the competitive bidder or whatever. So, from that perspective, talk about Bezos and the Post, um, his, how he brings his tech mindset to the newspaper business, because 2013 is that total flashpoint. And it's funny, you have that anecdote about 
uh, Bezos wondering like, why don't we just hire more star writers and then we don't need editors. And so editors at the Washington Post actually sent the raw copy um, to Bezos to show how terrible it was. And side note, I actually shared some of that. I shared that anecdote with people who are at the Washington Post and they freaked out. They're like, what? And I was like, your copy could be sitting in Jeff's inbox. You have no idea. So just talk about it, both his own personal perspective of running the Post, how he views it, um, is he actually hands off, and then what he ended up getting himself into in a way that I don't think he knew what he was doing right. back in 2013. Well, yeah, we go back to 2013. It was circumstance. Don Graham, you know, personal friend was selling the paper. You know, maybe he saw it a little bit as a potential potential to burnish his public image. You know, I have this memo in the first book about, you know, him, him understanding and grappling with the idea that as the CEO of a big, a big retailer, you know, that there were some reputational risks and, and he looked at what Walmart had been through. And, you know, the savior of a, of a national journalistic institution was probably a nice thing to add to his resume. But, you know, one of the first things he does as the owner of the Washington Post is he rejects a couple of budgets that call on him to lose a lot of money personally. And, it, you know, we do really need to give him credit for doing it the right way, you know, putting the Post on firm ground, not with an open pocketbook, but a demand to bring him new products and lean more into digital and becoming a national uh, an international media institution and not a local one, and being able to accept the risk of losing the analog business in favor of building a digital future. Now, on the political risks, you know, it was a lack of all of our imagination to understand that Donald Trump could be elected and be so vituperative against his political and media enemies. Um, but, you know, that was a, a ride Bezos went on. Um, you know, Amazon suffered in a whole bunch of ways, not just the, the Jedi contract. But, you know, they, they came through. Bezos has seen, you know, part of his complex public images as the post savior. He, you know, he really wrapped himself up the post in the post during the National Enquirer battle. So in a weird way, it's become a little bit of a shield for him. Um, and he did it sort of improperly because his ownership of the post had nothing to do with the Enquirer's pursuit of that story. But if you remember, he said it was a complexifier for him and that naturally people would be his enemies, even though he's conducting an affair out in the open. So, you know, that was what was curious. But so I guess my point is that, you know, the Post exacted a toll on Amazon, but it probably has benefited Bezos in a whole bunch of ways, some of which he could not have known back in, in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. So for our last bit here, I want to go back to the more meta discussion about Silicon Valley. So your book, the book you wrote in between um, Amazon Unbound and the Everything Store was called The Upstarts. It's really focused on Uber and Airbnb. And the reason why I enjoyed it so much is that, and I'm not saying this is what you're necessarily saying, but at least on my level, you basically took the idea, the, the idea embodied in Mark Andreessen's Software is Eating the World essay, aka you have this established set of legacy companies, industries, governments, et cetera, that are going to, that are going to be challenged as um, everything become, effectively becomes technology, everything becomes software. And you see this is in your coverage of Airbnb and Uber, obviously the taxi industry and the hotel industry. So that is a very 2016, 2017 narrative. Even like the upstart part suggests it's the more libertarian side of Silicon Valley. It's the more like challenging power, challenging those lame taxi drivers. We're from DC. So once again, we have, there's very little love lost for 2012 yeah, uh, taxi down. industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. lot of my credit card reader is broken energy yeah. here, but 
that obviously is gone. And for reasons more complicated than just than Travis Kalanick obviously leaving. Um, so sitting in 2021, um, I'm actually in New York City right now. So knock on wood, we're seeing the pandemic at least edge out a bit. We're seeing people start to plan for a post-COVID world at least. Where do you think just the narrative in Silicon Valley um, is. I, I just want to do a quick uh, quote that also just came to mind. Um, Eric Newcomer has an amazing Substack, and he had a he had a really good post where he just said a key takeaway from the past year may be that tech like didn't dream big enough. That there were there was the initial month or two where people like didn't do any deals. There was less investment, but those people who did double down during this moment have a real opportunity. So I'm just curious, how would you sum up in this last bit the opportunity or what you would say the narrative is in the space right now? Well, it's it's enormous. I mean, big tech has gotten bigger. The the playing field that was already tilted towards the big tech companies is now, you know, even further angled in in their on you know in their direction. You know, Airbnb and Uber, you know, were hit particularly hard. Like we saw a major curtailing yeah. of of their ambition. Airbnb, you know, like dropped the idea of activities on trips, dropped the idea of disrupting air travel, went back to its bread and butter, got rid of a lot of people. And, and navigated it pretty adroitly, I have to say. And then Uber, this big pivot to, to Uber Eats as its transportation business got absolutely gutted, you know, in a way that it couldn't have foreseen, seems to have made it through. And now the opportunity is opening back up. And um, yeah, and I think like the old dreams will come back and they'll start adding more people. And, um, you know, the challenge is always like, can, can you continue to hire and retain the best engineers, particularly when you're already public company, you know, and the compensation and upside isn't as high as it could be. But um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, a lot of it has to, will have to do, I guess, with the the size and scale of the comeback, right? And will we feel as comfortable renting a home from someone else, you know, now that we're all aware of, of you know, the, the viral uh, you know, risks or sharing, you know, what was, I don't even remember. What was the, what is the Uber carpool? Uber pool. Uber right? pool. Yeah. yeah. I took are, advantage of that, man. Are people coming back rides. to that? Are, are we doing so. that again? Yeah. yeah. With, with masks or without, um, and you know, scooters, right. That was such the big new thing. And, and that now they just disappeared from city streets, at least here in the Bay area. And will we, when traffic comes back, and things get busy again, will people feel less comfortable? And will we even be going back in the way that we were now that companies are offering more work from home flexibility? So I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of like give you a lame answer and say we kind of don't know. Certainly the big tech companies and Amazon itself has been entrenched, more powerful than ever. And the transportation companies I wrote about in in the in the upstarts, you know, the I guess the the size and and fierceness of their comeback is still really to be determined and largely dependent on the pandemic recovery. And, and something I just realized I should have asked you this because you're an editor at a major um, news outlet. What do you think the future is for the Washington Post? Because I want to bookend it with a couple of things. So one, Bezos made a couple of decisions early on back in 1314 that really paid off during the Trump years, aka move away from being a DC local regional paper, focus on national news. That's the definition of the Trump era. You go away from being a Facebook content farm to focusing on subscriptions, that space. But the obvious thing that's happening in the news industry right now is that interest in you know national political news has cratered and there is just a degree of subscription overload where you have the post competing against the new york times the behemoth of the space obviously how do you think 
the shifts just over the past three or four months are going to play out for the decisions that he made seven years ago. Yeah. No, I think the post is going to be fine, right? I don't worry about the post. It's a differentiated brand, you know, a, a loud, strong political voice interest and attention on political coverage will roar back with the next uh, indignity that, you know, our lawmakers hand to us or the next big election. Um, it, it's, you know, and, and they've got the backing of Bezos, even in the lean years and all these very subtle connections to Amazon products like Kindle Fire tablets and Prime Prime membership. Um, and if one day Bezos sells it, he'll have put it on strong footing, I believe. No, but I, I do worry about the smaller papers. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. You know, the, the plain dealer is a shadow of its former self. Communities all around the country and the world, you know, some, some of them have no, no local community newspaper. And these were the glue that held together our, our communities and informed the populace and allowed them to make rational choices at the ballot box and held politicians to account. And so what I'd like to see now that Bezos has had so much success with the Washington Post and has $200 billion at his disposal is, you know, let's back some small newspapers and I'll give them, you know, access to the same, you know, intellect and and resources that he gave to the Washington Post, which so burnished his image. And not just Bezos, but, um, you know, Warren Buffett, who's pulled out of local newspapers, and, you know, my boss, Mike Bloomberg, right? I do think there's a real public need for, um, you know, benefactors, or at least smart companies interested in the journalism and not just hedge funds to go and rescue some of these small papers. Yeah, I think it's really well said. Well, Brad, look, I uh, I know you got to get out of here. We really appreciate you joining us. Really loved um, all three of these books. It'll be available on our bookshop as well as on Amazon, um, where I hope uh, this, the, I, I hope that they continue to give you some prime placement and appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. Go ahead and subscribe to therealignment.substack.com. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you want to ask us a question, or it really helps other people find the show. And as always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast, and we will see you all next week.